Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Genesis chapter 1. That uh, will be real easy to find. Genesis 1. While you're doing that, um, I, I just feel compelled every month to say this. At Gracie Van, we, we observe the Lord's Supper once a month, usually the second Sunday of the month, which today is. And our service is a little bit different. It's designed that way. It's, uh, my comments will be briefer. I know that will be welcome news for many of you. Um, but what we're trying to do is have you concentrate on this sacrament. There's something very, there's something really uh, mystical, mysterious, deeply, inwardly spiritual that goes on as the people of God gather around these emblems. So this is our focus, not what I have to say so much, but this. And my comments are simply designed to help you prepare and bring you to this. Now, so, having said that, Genesis chapter 1, I want to read you about five verses, beginning at verse 26. You follow in your copies of God's Word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every... Beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Gang, those who... uh, are the opponents of Christianity, love uh, to point out that, that there is a rival story to the account of creation given to you in Genesis 1. There's another version. Um, it is inscribed on seven clay tablets in Akkadian, a language, uh, um, and it is called the Enuma Elish. You ever heard of that? It was uh, dug up somewhere at the end of the 1800s, 1890s or so. Um, and it is said to be a rival account of the uh, Christian version of creation. And um, the, the critics of Christianity love to make mention of the Enuma Elish. Because um, what they're suggesting is that Genesis 1 is just another piece of ancient literature alongside numerous others like the Enuma Elish. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing divine about it, that is, about Genesis 1. There's nothing divine, nothing to get you all been out of shape about. It's just another, it's just another account of origins and you've got several of those out there and one of the examples is the Enum Elish. 
Now, what I want to do, just for a couple of few minutes, is I want to give you kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of this, this uh, creation epic um, called the Enuma Elish. And then I'll let you decide. You can figure out whether um, you like this account of creation as compared to Genesis 1. Now you're going to have to <laughs> you're going to have to keep track because there's just a lot of little things in here that are interesting. Now this I, what I'm doing is just giving you a brief summary of what's found on those those seven clay tablets. I think number five is missing. I think the fifth tablet is missing, but or still missing. But in those other six, this is what's found on there. Now again, th- these are my words. In on these tablets, there is the mention of several primeval gods. Uh, there is Apsu. He is the god of fresh water. Then there is Tiamat. She is the goddess of salt water. And then there is, this is all, these are on the tablets, guys. Uh, and then there is Mumu. Uh, M-U-M-M-U. Mumu, Mumu. I, you know, I'm doing my best. Um, and, and the best that I can figure out is that he is the god of the mist. Well, on one occasion, several of the other gods that existed raised such a ruckus that Apsu, the god of fresh water, is provoked and angered, and he decides, with the allegiance of his son Mumu, that he is, that he is going to kill the rest of those gods. And so, um, Ea, E-A, another god, Ea, intercepts this plan and um, uh, puts Apsu to sleep and then kills him. And then he uh, quarantines Mumu, shuts him out from the rest of the gods, uh, and stops this plan of Apsu's. In the meantime, Ea begets a son, and his name is Marduk. Not Marmaduke, but Marduk. Sorry. Um, Mar- Ea begets a son by the name of Marduk, who is even greater than he himself. That is Ea. Well, Tiamat, um, the goddess of salt water and the wife of um, Absu, is now bent on revenge. And so her power grows over time, and she... She convinces some of the other gods to join her uh, in a rebellion. And she takes one of those gods, whose name is Kingu. And she elevates Kingu uh, up to the position of her new husband and grants him what is called supreme dominion. So, a, ultimately, uh, Marduk is selected as the head of all the other gods who are against Tiamat. And a civil war ensues, and Marduk kills Tiamat. Here we go. And from her corpse, he forms the world. Did you get that? Uh, in the civil war between the Ei and his boys, and um, Tiamat and Kingu, uh, and their friends... Tiamat is slain, and Marduk takes her body and from it forms the world. 
And we're not finished. Um, the gods who sided with Tiamat are initially forced into some service to the other victorious gods. And they, these gods who are in servanthood are ultimately freed from their servitude when Marduk decides that he is going to kill Kingu. <laughs> that would be Tiamat's second husband. Um, he's going to kill Kingu, and from Kingu, he is going to create mankind from his blood. From the blood of Kingu, Marduk is going to create mankind. And so finally, the gods appoint Marduk as the chief of all the gods. But unfortunately, Marduk has a problem. Um, he, he's been doing a pretty good job so far, and he is acclaimed as the chief of the gods after crushing the skull of Tiamat, who, is, who was really the closest thing that he had to a mother. But um, he's, he's arranged the heavens, and he's set up stations for the gods and the constellations, and he's appointed the moon to keep track of the months and the days. And, uh, but we, he's still got a problem, uh, because the gods are hungry. They're hungry. And so they demand that Marduk do something about their hunger. And so Marduk then presents a plan uh, to his other deities, to his fellow deities. Now, guys, I'm going to read you five lines from the Enuma Elish. I've just summarized a lot of it for you, but I want to read you five lines because the problem is Marduk has got a bunch of gods who are upset because they're hungry. And so Marduk has come up with a plan. Here it is. I'm, I'm quoting. Blood I will mass and cause bones to be. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. Listen to this. He shall be charged... That is, man, savage man, will be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So humans who were created out of the blood of the rebel god Kingu are now given the task of bearing all of the burdens of life so that the gods can live in leisure and in ease. The, the, the man that is made from the blood of Kingu, his, his assigned task is to bring food to all the gods and goddesses. That's it. <laughs> now, tell me. Uh, by the way, that is what is... Presented as the evidence to tell you and me that we ought not believe in Genesis 1 because there are these other rival accounts. And that's the rival. What do you think? 
You like that enumeral leash thing? <laughs> well, guys, um, you wonder why I'm doing this, particularly as we are about to approach. Here we go. Folks, the differences between those two stories can hardly be overstated. They're enormous. But it's not the differences in the stories so much that, that I want you to see. It's the difference in the gods. The gods of the Enuma Elish and the God of Genesis 1. Did you notice? There's two things I want you to, want you to see and then we'll, we'll meet around the table. But let me point out two things, the differences between these two gods. I mean, God and series of gods. Genesis 1 and the God of Genesis 1 and the gods of Enuma Elish. For the Akkadians, ladies and gentlemen, man exists for the gods. And we are given the task to make the gods comfortable. We are given the task of providing for all of the needs that the gods have so that they might live in leisure and ease. We are supposed to bring food for the hungry gods. Did you notice anything, well, there's a lot of things unique about Genesis 1, 26 through 30. But did you know that, did you, did you see that not only, I mean, God create, in, in the, on the sixth day, God not only creates male and female, but that's not where it stops. Nor does it stop with verse 28, which is the cultural mandate, where Adam and Eve are given dominion over the whole of the earth. But it also goes on to include, in verses 29 and 30, a menu. You see, um, in this account, God is the one providing the food for man. Not the other way around. The radical differences between the... This God of Genesis 1 and, and, and all the idols, I, I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, is very evident right here in this comparison between these two. Because in, in the Enuma Elish and in all the gods and in all of the religions, all of the other religions save Christianity demand a quid pro quo. Do you know what that means? It's kind of a legalist term. A quid pro quo means this for that. In all of the other religions, guys, there is the demand on the part of the gods, you give me this and I'll give you that. Quid pro quo. And you have been created to make sure that all of my needs as gods are met. Because I got needs. And you can meet them. And so the gods of the Enuma Elish enter into an exchange arrangement 
with, with men, whether it be for food or, or for affirmation or for pleasure or even sex. And guys, you couldn't expect anything but that because, because, because these gods are the, the results of the imagination of the creature. That is because they're, they're creatures themselves falsely called gods. Idols can't help themselves. They can't help but be dependent on all the other creatures. And yet, the God that is described in Genesis 1 is a God that doesn't come to man and say, meet my needs. In fact, the God in Genesis 1 is the God who comes to man and says, I am going to meet yours. This God doesn't need anything that he has made. And man is never in the position that he can offer a quid for his quo. For this God, he's never in, man is never in the position that he can offer a this for a that. And everything that man has, including our very existence, is, is a gift of sheer grace. Gang, Marduk wants to set a table and he wants you to bring all the food and meet his needs. This God, he set another table. And by what he placed on it, he met all of ours. Gang, I don't meet this God's needs. He meets mine. I, I don't bring him something in exchange for his favor. What I bring, and I certainly hope I bring something, but I bring it not because I want something in exchange. I bring it as a statement of my thanksgiving for having already received his favor. Guys, there's one more thing and then we're going to go. But Instead of using man to get a life of ease, as you find in the Enumilage, instead of using man to create a life of ease for me as the gods, this God exchanged his life of ease for a cross. Gang, do you understand that no God of any religion at any place, at any time, under any circumstances has ever offered to die in the place of his people? Do you know what Mark 10.45 says? It says, He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know how shocking that is? Do you know how shocking it is that the God in whom we believe 
is the one that made the sacrifices so that our needs could be met. You see, this God doesn't take food. He gives food. And not just the kind that gets digested, not just the kind for the belly. He gives this kind. He gives this kind that when eaten aright, we live forevermore. Again, my point is simply that the gospel that we preach is supremely about a God who gave. A God who gave to the point of breaking his body and shedding his blood. Now you tell me, which gospel would you embrace? Father, I do pray that you will meet us at this table and that your people might be reminded of the, 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 the radical nature of the suffering Christ for our sin. And that we might have an opportunity just now to be reminded that Jesus Christ left his home in glory to die in our place so that the need that had existed because of our sin could be met. Oh God, stir up. Stir up the hearts of your people as we consider Christ. In whose name we pray.